Well, this has to be one of my all-time, I think, favourite podcasts I've recorded because we really delve into two of my favourite topics, cognitive performance and nutrition. But we also look at positive psychology. Now, did you know that negative self-talk can dramatically impact your cognitive performance and your brain health? Sciences, uh, Brain HQ, there are these tests that you can do online if you want. But I'm also a big fan of the subjective. How do you feel that you're performing and you're the only person who really knows your own baseline? The most important thing that I think that you can do to improve your brain health from an exercise standpoint is first, some degree of improving cardiovascular fitness and then just like putting on as much muscle as you can. And again, it's quite a small amount. The I'm not good enough, I should have done better has a direct impact on your physiology and impacts your cognitive performance. Alongside this, we look at so many other things, our sleep opportunities, our nutrition, what supplements are good for us and are actually bad for us. And we also look at other things, such as our exercise, how much does exercise impact our performance and also cognitive decline. I've got one of the best experts in the field on today's show and also one of the most impressive CVs I've read to date. Dr. Tommy Wood is a neuroscientist and he has coached dozens of world-class athletes. He received an undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of Cambridge, a medical degree from the University of Oxford and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. Tommy is currently an assistant professor of paediatrics at the University of Washington in Seattle. He looks at how early brain injury impacts brain health across the lifespan, as well as developing easy methods which can help track performance and longevity in professional athletes and the general population. Get ready for one of the most insightful episodes I think I have ever recorded to date. Tommy, welcome to Live Well, Be Well, all the way from Washington. I wish you were together, but I am so excited to have you here today. How are you? And happy Thanksgiving. Oh, thanks. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to you, even though you don't celebrate it. Um, (laughs) It's very nice to be here. Also sad that we can't be sitting down uh, in person, but, you know, really happy to, to be here with you and really excited to talk today. Me too. I mean, you have got one of the most impressive CVs I think I've read today and one that I am just so inspired by and we're gonna digress into all of the work that you've done into the neuroscience brain health cognitive performance cognitive decline all of the work that you're currently doing but before we do the first question I want to ask you before we can digress into this conversation (laughs) is it's a a question I ask all my guests Uh is what is the one thing that you have changed your mind about over the last 10 years so many things like maybe that's <laughs> it's it's a difficult question to answer because i believe as a scientist the process of scientific investigation is just the process of being less wrong over time so that means that you have to be wrong about a lot of stuff to start with which i was and i probably am right now and then i hope that over the next four or five decades i can be a little bit less wrong about those things over time we can never prove anything in biology right so we can just hope to like iterate and get closer to to a to a real answer but you know i used to think like uh, the paleo diet and low carb diets were like the thing that everybody had to eat for optimal health we like we know that's not true um i used to think that i could 
give you a stool test or a urine organic acids test and tell you everything about your health and everything that I you know would need to do to fix you in terms of supplements and stuff that's not true um, I hope that one day it will be true but it's it's really not so lots of things that I've been wrong about and I'm hopefully less wrong about now because I think that's kind of the goal of the work that I do I always I've heard this term a while ago I can't remember where I heard it from I listened to a really interesting podcast and they always said a really good scientist is one that tries to prove the hypothesis wrong yeah. and I think that's such a good statement that actually just always saying you know science is forever changing is so important to actually put your hands up and go no I'm not right on that so I love your answer I think that's fantastic thanks <laughs> um so let's go on to today because you specialize in two areas cognitive performance and also cognitive decline and if we look at what we're dying from most in the UK today it is dementia mm. and I mean that might be a surprise to some but sadly that's where we are but so many times in clinic as well, I have people come to me to say how can I optimize my you know my brain health my cognitive performance what can I do there so they're two ends of the spectrum but what I really want to base emphasis on today is cognitive health because I think we all know a lot about you know, we can see the changes in the gym with our physical health. We can kind of, we have measures of our physical health, but how can we measure our brain health? How can we know if we're actually in a good equilibrium here? It's a tricky area, largely because each person's cognitive performance and baseline is so different. And I think that's a good thing, right? Um, human variability is one of the, the best things about us as, as, a, as a species. But the, the issue comes when we're then trying to test that right so say you want to try and create some baseline tests for for cognitive performance and, and we do this you know if, if you're a neurologist and you're diagnosing people with dementia or potentially with dementia or mild cognitive impairment which is sort of like this the pre-dementia stage you have some standardized cognitive tests like the MOCA or the uh, mmsc the mini uh, mental state examination and then there's like there's thresholds so here you score x out of 30 you get a diagnosis of, of mild cognitive impairment or dementia and in reality in order to sort of reach those thresholds different people will have to lose different amounts of function right so if you have a large amount of function in a given cognitive area you're going to have to lose a lot before you start to pick it up on a standardized test whereas others that may not be the case and that's because maybe their cognitive performance is in a different area that isn't even on that test the real answer is it's difficult um, it, it's hard to, to, to create these hard tests. I think there are a number of ways that, that people can, can think about it. There are you know, uh, Cambridge Brain, Brain Sciences, uh, Brain HQ. There are these tests that you can do online if you want. But I'm also a big fan of the subjective. How do you feel that you're performing? And you're the only person who really knows your own baseline. Um, and so even before your family members start to notice that your cognitive function has changed or you know the doctor notices that your cognitive function has changed or can see it in a test you probably know that your cognitive function ha has changed because you can feel it you know what you used to be able to do you know what you can do now so i think there is some power in you know tracking your subjective feelings of, of about uh, how you're performing and, and where you know some issues may be and then you know that's the earlier sign that maybe you can you know time it's time to do some things to address it because one thing we're increasingly learning is that early in, in the process of declining cognitive function, if you intervene, you can either slow or reverse 
you know some of the, some of those declines and that's one of the thing that, things that i think is most important is having people know that your brain is not this fixed thing that just gets worse over time which is what we've essentially been told uh <laughs> For decades, right? Every time you don't sleep properly or every time you have a few too many drinks, you kill a whole bunch of neurons and they're gone forever and they're never coming back. Um, and that's that's really not true. You know, you can you know, regain or, you know, improve function even late in life or, you know, ask your brain to do new things and it will. So that's, did I answer your question? I just yeah. kind of rambled a little bit. I think I did. No, you definitely did. I mean, there's so many questions I want to follow on from. But I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where we're always looking, and I do really want to talk about, you know, the cognitive decline, but we're always also looking at the performance element. And it can be really hard to to measure somebody's cognitive brain health and see actually how can we optimise that because there's so many different functions within someone's brain health, such as memory or processing or, you know, whatever that is. So many people want to optimise that area. And I think it's really hard to actually measure where the baseline is. And I think that's something that's really interesting. And I know that, you know, you do a lot of work with, you know, professional athletes and you're pioneering so much with the research in this area. And I was wondering if you do any specific things around that area to kind of look at where the baseline sits. It, it really depends on the, on the person and what it is that they're trying to improve. Um, mm. And so I think that's probably where I'd start if you, if, if you need a a hard answer is you probably have some idea of the area that you're particularly interested in improving. So, mm. you know, I've done some work with athletes who really needed to improve their reaction time for, for various reasons. There's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do. You know, at that point, you're kind of at the bleeding edge, just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping that something, hoping that something works. And if reaction time does improve, you don't know what it was that improved it. Um, but at least, you know, you measure a bunch to start and then you measure after you change things and, and you can sort of see an improvement. And so then maybe there's something around executive function. There are things like the uh, the go, no-go test um, that, that you can do. There's apps on the phone. You know, maybe it's maybe it's memorization. Of course, there are, uh, you know, um, there are a number of uh, apps and tools you can use uh, for that if, you, if you're worried that you're sort of like short-term memory isn't as good or you, you need it to be better for some reason so so i think start by figuring out which aspect of cognitive function it is that you're particularly interested in and then there are some more specific tools but if you're just like how do i make my brain function better then then i think the subjective is probably the the the, the place to start because you'll have some idea of overall how you feel like you're you're, you're functioning cognitively we're going to go on to strategies of short-term strategies that we can put in and longer-term strategies that we can put in to optimize our performance, but also look at how we can reduce what you just said earlier, that cognitive decline. So I think it's really powerful to know that we can actually intervene and we do have the control to act here. But before I do, I'm really interested in how did you get into this area? Because I don't just want to bypass this really fascinating CV that you have. You have a biochemistry degree from the University of Cambridge. You have a medical degree from the University of Oxford and a PhD in physiology and neuroscience from the University of Oslo. And now you are an assistant professor at the paediatrics of the University of Washington in Seattle. And you really look at longevity. You work with high performing athletes. I mean, there's so much there. How and why did you go into this sector? I kind of fell into it, to be honest. <laughs> I hate Although... it when people say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it tell... just happens. No, no. Of course, it doesn't. Of course, it doesn't just happen. I mean, I can tell you the story, but but it's not like it's not like I had a plan. Let, let's put it that way. So, I did my undergrad degree in, bio, in natural sciences and specialised in, in biochemistry in my final year at Cambridge. And 
during my time as an undergrad, I had a director of studies who, who encouraged me to apply for like a welcome biomedical research grant, which was basically like, if you're an undergrad, you get a little bit of money over the summer so you can go in a lab and just like do some research um, just to, just for fun. And so, and I ended up being in the lab of a professor at the University of Bristol, Mariana Torreson, who is a neonatal neuroscientist. She looks at ways to treat the injured newborn brain. And so I spent two summers in her lab and then I went to medical school. Originally, I, I, I had a place to do a master's degree in biochemistry at Cambridge, like stay on and, and do a master's. But a friend of mine said, oh, I think I'm going to apply to medical school, like graduate entry medical school. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll do that instead. So I did that. Throughout my undergrad years, I'd become increasingly interested in, in health and performance. I was, uh, as a kid, I was very uninterested in that, actively uninterested and disinterested in that. But I was a rower. I'd started coaching rowing. I got very interested in nutrition and performance and that kind of stuff. Then I was like, well, I'm going to take that and I'm going to help other people do that as a doctor. Of course, doctors don't do that. Um, but that was what I thought um, b before I really sort of under understood how the, me the medical system tends to work. And so I, I went to medical school and I, and I continued uh, working um, with uh, sort of athletes. I, again, I was still a rower. I was a uh, head coach of the medical school boat club. And I did some, some other things. I ran a circuit training class for medical students. And I did some fitness coaching for some uh, football players and stuff. And then... I graduated um, med school and I worked as a junior doctor in central London for, for a couple of years. And then I re-met um, this professor who now moved back to Norway. She's Norwegian. And I didn't know what, what area of, of medicine I wanted to specialize in. So she said, why don't you come to Norway and do a PhD? And I was like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. I'll do that. Um, and I've, I've said that multiple times in my life and that's ended up where, where I am. I was like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. Why don't I do it? So... I started a PhD in, in formal basic neuroscience, um, again, focused on the neonatal brain, sort of the, the babies get some kind of brain injury around birth. What can we do to treat that? But at the same time, you know, I was now starting a PhD. I could sit down at my computer, go on PubMed, you know, so I started a blog, some podcasts around health and, uh, and performance and things like that. And so that was kind of like I had these two, two areas. One is like my formal academic research and then this sort of like health and performance kind of area both sides kind of continued in parallel so um you know i finished my phd i uh, ended up getting a postdoc position here at the university of washington in seattle where i'm now a faculty member in pediatrics and neuroscience um but i also started working with a company that worked with you know various kinds of, of athletes trying to improve their health and performance with a whole bunch of the testing stuff that i mentioned before i I've looked at thousands of athletes, uh, blood tests. That's something that you know I, I still do a lot of. Then through that, I started to work with other uh, professional athletes. Um, Formula One drivers in particular is, is the area that I, I still do uh, a lot of work. And then eventually, those two streams kind of come together. So once, once you're a, a faculty, um, as I am, you know, I'm an assistant professor, you can kind of do a lot of what you want. Um, and so then I can, you know, I, I still research the neonatal brain. Um, I've started to do more work uh, in the lab with traumatic brain injury. Um, and I've spent all this time working with various people who are trying to improve either their athletic performance or their cognitive performance or, you know, you know, just improve their health span generally. So then I can start to tie all these different bits together. And what you can see is that your trajectory of brain health starts 
I mean, it probably starts maybe even before you're conceived, but it certainly starts while you're in the womb. And then the the environment that you are born into and then all the things that happen throughout your life, like, you know, concussions would be a great example. But you can also intervene at pretty much any stage and see benefit that sort of stretches out. Um, and in addition to that, the same things are always important uh, throughout the entire lifespan. So it's not like each injury is its own thing that we can think of on its own. They all affect one another and the same things affect all of them. So kind of these two strands of work that I've done have kind of come together. And part of it, uh, again, is sort of serendipitous because I, I moved to the US because I met a girl who is now my wife. Um, and the process of getting a medical license in the US was just so arduous that I decided to stay in research, which is which is now what I do. And when you're in research, you can kind of tinker with lots of things that are interesting. And so here we are. So now for you, what's your focus? Because there is so much in this sector and I really want to digress this into two things really. The short-term strategies, and I think a lot of people listening to this will want to know about optimizing their performance of brain health. But I want to start actually with cognitive decline because it's been in the press a lot recently. And I'm going to start it with what I tagged you in this week, which was Chris Hemsworth. Now, he's actually taking time off work um, after he had a series of tests which showed that he had two copies of the gene APOE4. Have I said mm. that right? Yeah. I said that right. Um, one from his mother and one from his father, which makes him eight out of ten more times more likely to develop the disease. Now, that's obviously probably caused a bit of a scare. I remember when Angelina Jolie came out and she had the tests around breast cancer, mm. and that caused a lot of discussion in the media and a lot of women wanting to go in have these tests done to see if they're at high risk as well. What's your, your thoughts on, on this situation with Chris Hemsworth? First of all, maybe it's worth zooming out and thinking about dementia and cognitive decline in general. And what we're really talking about here is, is Alzheimer's disease, because uh, there are multiple different types of dementia that have different pathologies. But the majority are Alzheimer's disease, and the majority of that is what we call late-onset um, or sporadic Alzheimer's disease. And that's an important distinction because um, the other type of Alzheimer's disease, early onset Alzheimer's disease, is usually caused by uh, a dominant genetic mutation that causes this very predictable um, cognitive decline in your like, 30s or 50s. And we're not sure how much there is we can do about that. Um, and this is less than 5% of cases of Alzheimer's disease. So the 95% or more, which is now becoming the commonest cause of death in the UK, like you mentioned, and it's been, you know, it's increased dramatically several times uh, in the US over the last few decades. That's, that's what people are really uh, worried about. That disease is very heterogeneous. So it's very different from person to person. There's this like, adage that I quite like, which is that once you've seen one person with Alzheimer's disease, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and that's because the effect of the environment seems to be so dominant in that disease. So it's this combination of all these different things that, that become uh, important. Um, and there was a very nice uh, meta-analysis by uh, Professor Jin Chai Yu, who, which came out a couple of years ago, which looked at all the environmental factors that can affect cognitive decline. And there's, you know, various aspects about health, metabolic health, smoking, alcohol, diet, education, um, 
uh, homocysteine levels, so like B vitamin status and uh, omega threes, like all these all these things come into play. Um, there's also like air pollution uh, plays a big role, socioeconomic status, social deprivation, like all these things are important. Um, but that means, in theory, that these things are also modifiable, right? If it's about behavior and the environment, that's something that, in theory, we can change uh, as individuals sometimes and as society hopefully more broadly so when you think about the genetic aspect of that it's actually a very small component so your your apoe status so there are three different types of that gene apolipoprotein e two three and four and you can have one or two copies of each of those some combination and so chris hemsworth has two copies of ApoE4. He's homozygous for ApoE4, which of all of those carries the highest risk of late onset or sporadic Alzheimer's disease. However, your ApoE4 status or your ApoE status probably contributes about 5% of your total risk of Alzheimer's disease. So it's not negligible, but it's very small compared to everything else that you might do. And so in this uh, documentary, Limitless, Chris gets some advice from uh, a friend of mine, Peter Vatia, um, about how he can reduce his risk and probably bring his risk down to like a, a normal baseline level of risk, which I, I think is, is absolutely possible because the environment seems to play a, a really dominant effect here, 95% of risk, approximately. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, and it, what's, what's really interesting to me uh, in particular, I think it kind of sort of supports this idea that the environment is the really dominating factor, is that ApoE4 is associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease in modernized, westernized populations, but not in indigenous populations that have been studied. So there are three studies now where ApoE4 status did not predict cognitive decline or dementia. The Bolivian Simone there was a recent study in indigenous americans and then the nigerian yoruba and all those groups are living in the environment in which they most recently adapted or evolved in right sort of maybe much much less of a modernized type environment and their apoe4 isn't a predictor of, of cognitive decline or alzheimer's disease so i think there's an interaction between genes and environment and if you modify the environment you can probably mitigate most if not all uh, of that risk wow so can you talk us through then some of these factors that could be affecting us in the modern world and our environment today i mean i think i can kind of we can probably guess a few but just to kind of note them down of what we should be doing and what we can actually be taking control of after listening to this podcast to help reduce those effects there are a few different ways to think about this and i generally think about the brain you know, like a three-legged stool of things that the brain needs. And one is the delivery of oxygen and nutrients so that your cells can, can function, right? So like there's a delivery component. And then you can break down that into its constituent parts. So you need oxygen and glucose or ketones or, or lactate, like so oxygen and some kind of fuel source for the brain to work. And you need vascular supply. You need blood vessels that work in order to, to get it to the brain. 
And that's important because of something called neurovascular coupling, which is when a certain area of the brain is active, it asks for more blood flow because it needs more oxygen, it needs more nutrients. And you need healthy blood vessels for, for that to work. So then all the things that uh, are important for cardiovascular disease and strokes, um, like so uh, metabolic health, um, or, you know, all those things uh, become important, you know, systemic inflammation, all those things can affect vascular supply. They can also affect the brain more directly. But then, you know, we can think about what do we need to make our blood vessels healthy? So a really good example is aerobic exercise, right? One of the best things that we can do. Probably exposure to sunlight is really great for releasing nitric oxide. That causes vasodilation, happy, happy blood vessels. That's probably important too. Uh, so that's one. So vascular supply. Also in that bucket, in addition to just like the basic metabolic fuels, um, is the nutrients that your brain needs to grow and adapt or support function. And there are several things, like you could, we could spend hours talking about just that, but uh, important things that have come up in the research in relation to you know, preventing cognitive decline or dementia are B vitamin status. And there's some very nice work done by David Smith and his colleagues at the University of Oxford, where they looked at people who had a high level of homocysteine in their blood as an indicator of inadequate B vitamin status, methylation. And in those people, they then gave them B12, uh, B6, and folate. Um, and actually, I think riboflavin is, is important too. So some B vitamins, and then that slowed brain atrophy and slowed cognitive decline in a randomized clinical trial. What they then saw later was that that worked best in people who had a good omega-3 status. We know that DHA, a long chain omega-3 fatty acid is really important for the brain. It's sort of like when you're growing a brain in the first place as a baby, like you suck up all your mother's DHA because it's, it, it makes up such a huge component uh, of, the, of the fats in the brain. So there's an interaction there. So B vitamin status and omega-3 status, those become really important. And those are probably the things that we have uh, the best uh, evidence for, but there's a whole bunch of stuff we could also dig into there as well. So, so like that nutrition component, vascular component, that's our like supply. Then we need to actually ask the brain to do something, right? So this is the area that I'm, I've become really interested in recently, which is around the idea of cognitive demand. So if you're trying to get a tissue, any tissue in the body to function as well as possible, you need to stimulate it. You need to ask it to do something. And it's hard to think to sort of like conceptualize this with the brain sometimes, but it's really easy to think about it in terms of muscles, right? If you want to get bigger and stronger muscles, you have to work your muscles. And when you work your muscles, then you upregulate growth, but you also upregulate repair. So all these processes that people are talking about in the in, you know, biohacking community like autophagy and mitophagy and all that stuff, the best way to stimulate that is by actually stimulating the tissue rather than restricting nutrients with fasting, which is what people think they need to do. The best way to upregulate autophagy in the, in the muscle tissue is to just do exercise. And with the brain, the best way to stimulate uh, autophagy is to do complex cognitive tasks. And we know this from animal work, rather. I can't measure autophagy in your, in your brain, um, sadly, yet. Um, we, we mainly know <laughs> this from, 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 from mouse work. So then there's this, so there's this component. So you need the supply, you need demand, and then you need the sort of like the rest and recovery and safety component. And there's like a few bits that, that f fit into this as well. But so the absence of toxic exposures. So this could be uh, systemic inflammation, 
insulin resistance, atmospheric pollution we talked about, that seems to be uh, particulate pollution in the atmosphere, it seems to be uh, important, heavy metals, you know, certain infections, right? These things that can actively negatively affect the brain, chronic stress seems to play a big role here because it, it, it prevents that kind of rest and recovery state that you need to, to recover or allow a tissue to adapt and repair. And then sleep. Sleep is obviously a critical factor for, for long-term brain health. And again, from multiple aspects, it's, that's where you, sort of, where you consolidate, that's where you actually generate the connections, just like athletes know the same thing and, and you know, people who exercise know the same thing, that you don't get stronger in the gym, you get stronger when you're at home eating and sleeping and recovering. And the brain uh, is the same. So that's how I think about things in those, those buckets. And that then also helps you think, well, for me, like where is maybe the biggest issue? Like which of those things, do, you know, is, is, is most of a problem for me? And then you can identify, you know, those low hanging fruit. Where, what can I go after first that's likely to have um, uh, the, the biggest effect for me? There's so, I didn't want to interrupt you there at all, but there were so many points that were coming up for me because, um, I mean, first of all, you mentioned about cardiovascular exercise, like mm. getting cardio in, that's really important. I mean, we're looking at public health guidelines here. Would you say that's 30 minutes a day? Or would you say that's more? What would you say is the optimal amount for our brain health? What should we try to be striving to? I'm going to try and break this down into all the things that you spoke about. There was a recent uh, meta-analysis and meta-regression that, that looked at this, that looked at all the different studies of exercise and, and cognitive function and they try to figure out what's the minimum effective dose of exercise to see a clinically significant change in cognitive function right so what's the smallest amount you can do before you see like an actually an important change you know often in studies something will say it will be statistically significant right there's a change here it's different we tested it with a statistical test it's different but to the individual it doesn't really matter. It's like, it's not clinically meaningful. Like, mm. so, so that's an important distinction. So they, they looked at it in terms of met minutes per week. So, which is, which is like a function of how intense the exercise is times by how much time you spend doing it. But it, in reality, it's like 30 minutes a day of moderate to vigorous physical activity, which just happens to be the government guidelines. So actually it's probably less than people think. You, mm. I imagine the work shows that a bit more than that is probably better. 45 minutes to an hour a day is, is maybe optimal. I don't like that word. We can come back to that later. Um, <laughs> but 30 It's like how is... I don't like the word diet. It's the same thing. <laughs> I know why you're saying that. <laughs> but 30 minutes a day. And the level that we're talking about is like 30 minutes of brisk walking a day. Like that's what we're talking about. Nothing mm -hmm. heroic. Not 20 hours in the gym. Um 30, 30 minutes a day of, of brisk walking is more than enough. And th there's, it was a very nice study done a few years ago now that, that showed exactly this. They took individuals in their 60s and 70s and they randomized them to uh, either three sessions of 40 minutes of brisk walking per week or three 40-minute uh, sessions of stretching as the control group. And the walking group saw significant increases in size of their hippocampi on a brain scan. And that's the area of the brain that's really critical for memory and is and it sort of atrophies and, and declines in Alzheimer's disease. So, and that was the first time that we saw we could increase the size of an area of the brain in older humans with a simple intervention. And it was just wow. 40 minutes of walking three times a week. I think it's probably to, to see really significant effects, it's probably less than you think. 
Um, and, mm. and in that same study, they showed that the effect was bigger in those who got the greatest fitness benefit. So again, it's sort of like directly related to, to cardiovascular fitness, at least at least a part of that effect. Wow. Okay. And then what about resistance training? Because we're always taught about resistance training. Does that play a part in our brain health as well? Is there a direct link with muscle mass and brain health? Yes, I, I like to think so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> mainly because I like lifting weights. Um, the, so there are a few reasons why, why I say that. If you look at muscle mass and brain mass, there was a, a study that came out a few years ago, which looked at what are the what are the best predictors of how much brain you have in your skull um, from your like overall body composition. And this sounds like a weird thing, but um, obviously everybody has a different size skull, right? But the thing that we know happens over time as you get older, or as you enter into cognitive decline and dementia, is that your brain shrinks, right? You lose brain mass. So across people with and without dementia, they looked at like how much of your skull is filled with brain, essentially. And is there anything in your body composition that can predict that? And so BMI didn't predict it, fat mass didn't predict it, but muscle mass did. So muscle mass and brain mass were directly correlated. And there's a number of mechanisms and reasons why, why that could be the case that we can dig into. But directly related to that, there was a big study that came out from the UK Biobank that looked at uh, a measure of IQ called fluid intelligence. And again, they looked at, they had DEXA scans on all these people. They looked at all these different parts of uh, body composition and the best predictor of fluid intelligence. And it was slightly better in women than it was in men. And that's probably because, you know, in, ge in general, men are more likely to be at a threshold of muscle mass that is probably enough than women. So there's maybe more, more of an effect you can have in women. They found that the best predictor was muscle mass of fluid intelligence. And they also looked at everything else like BMI, subcutaneous fat, visceral fat, like, None of that mattered as much as muscle mass. So while people are really focused on how much they weigh, the most important thing that I think for, that you can do to improve your brain health from an exercise standpoint is first, some degree of improving cardiovascular fitness, and then just like putting on as much muscle as you can. And again, it's quite a small amount. You need to be in like the top 50% of the population. It's not like you have to go to the gym for several hours a week. It's funny because sometimes the, like, the message... Uh, is affected by the messenger and i've like several times i've talked about muscle mass and mortality and uh cognitive function and and cognitive decline and i like to lift weights and i and i look like i lift weights and 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 people will come to me and say but i don't want to look like you and you don't need to absolutely not so when you look at how much muscle mass people need there's something called the ffmi fat free mass index uh, which is essentially the same as BMI, the body mass index, but you calculate it after you take away fat mass because the fat doesn't matter. What matters is how much muscle and, and bone is included in there as well. And so in women, you probably want an FFMI above 14, ideally above 16. And if you have like a DEXA scan or you can like estimate... Oh, I had one this weekend. I was only yeah. 12. Your FFMI was 12? Yeah. All right, we better get to the gym. Uh, <laughs> so above 14 is just like in the top half of the population. It's not, it's not a huge amount. Uh, mm -hmm. And in men, you probably you want to be at least above 17 and maybe closer to 19. So that can mm -hmm. give you like s some, some cutoffs. And if we're thinking about like, what does that really take to see improvements there? I think about something like the SMART study, which was done in, I think they were, they were in their mid-70s on average. 
and they it was a four group design so they had a control group and then they had people do either resistance training or cognitive training or both and they saw the biggest improvements in like connectivity and brain function in those who were in the two resistance training groups there was some like additional benefit to memory and hipp hippocampus function in, in the cognitive training group as you'd probably expect hmm. but the the training protocol that they did was three times a week six exercises three sets of eight so you like go to your local small gym like one exercise per muscle group three sets of eight three times a week you can do it in 30 to 45 minutes that's the amount of resistance training we're talking again nothing heroic just enough to kind of stimulate some of, like some of that neuromuscular connection as well as you know build muscle mass which is which uh gives you a bigger buffer for you know metabolic health and all these other things that's the kind of level of effort that we're talking. Okay. And so that feels quite achievable for most yeah, people. I think this is absolutely. a big thing, right? So many of us can feel a lot of this is out of reach, but actually this feels quite achievable. And you mentioned in that study about cognitive tasks. Mm. Now, I know this is a really big determining factor of also cognitive decline as well as cognitive performance. What type of cognitive tasks can we do to help? Yeah, so what's nice about I think the evidence that supports the idea of, of cognitive demand is that there are a whole bunch of things that seem to be important. Some of the best evidence we have is around retirement. So there are multiple population studies now that, that show as soon as you retire, your cognitive function declines because you've removed your main cognitive stimulus, which for the, like the modern westernized society is your work. So that doesn't mean that you shouldn't retire, but it means that if you're going to retire, um, you should replace it with something that's equally cognitively stimulating. And what people normally do is they're like, well, I'll just start doing Sudoku. And like Sudoku is very nice, but it's not, it's not enough. Um, it's not hard enough. It's not challenging enough. Um, things that certainly seem to be protective uh, include language, music, uh, movement that has a coordination component in, in particular, because sort of that challenging your orientation in space is a real driver for the brain to to adapt um, so there are lots of nice studies again in older individuals where you take like a dance class and in a dance class you have multiple things that are really important for brain health you have music you have movement you know sort of like an aerobic component you have coordination and then there's also like a social aspect uh, mm -hmm. as well and, and social connection is really important for long-term brain health so pick any skill that you you want to develop and you find challenging and as long as you're continually working to sort of improve your skill in that skill your ability then i think you're you're giving yourself some some cognitive challenge and, and, and an appropriate cognitive challenge and to to sort of like really separate out what that might mean if you think about like when you're working all day and you're like oh i'm so well, my brain is so busy but like what you're doing is you're in meetings, you're on calls, you're answering emails, you're busy. That's not cognitive demand, right? That's mm. just stress. I'm surely that reduces, that kind of increases your risk of cognitive decline because you're overpacking your brain. Is that is that a thing? Yes, I know. I'll, I'll, I'll we'll, we'll come back. We'll come back to that. So, mm. but for the the cognitive demand thing, I I think about something. You know, imagine you're taking some kind of class and you're trying to learn a new skill. And it could be language, it could be jujitsu, uh, it could be a musical instrument. 
once you've like warmed up and warmed down and said hello to the the teacher and had a little break in the middle and chatted to your fellow students you're probably only doing like 20 to 30 minutes of like really pushing the boundaries of what you're currently capable of right and that could be in a conversation or some like movement skill you know if you're uh, doing a ball sport so there's there's some nice evidence on like badminton versus you know similarly aerobically challenging running but without the skill component the badminton seems to better support um, cognitive function so think about a skill where for like 20 or 30 minutes you can kind of keep trying something new trying to get a little bit better but then after that you probably you know you feel a bit tired or you get frustrated because you're not getting any better and then you need a period of rest recovery sleep relaxation right so it's that kind of skill it's if it's something that you can do all day it's not it's not challenging uh, that mm. that's not the right kind of skill you have to be really sort of pushing the boundaries of your, of your current abilities because that's what I think is when you're talking about this I really think about us all cramming everything in and actually is that more detrimental Potentially, the best evidence that we have for stress and cognitive decline is, again, from job stress. Um, and it's for both uh, dementia and depression. And depression is actually a risk factor for, for dementia. So these kind of work together. The type of stress that seems to be detrimental is stress in a job where you don't have control. So if you if somebody is putting demands on you and you have no power or control to change that and it's highly stressful highly demanding that seems to be associated with increased risks of uh, dementia and depression if you're in a stressful job but you're in charge yeah you know you're in the 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 c-suite or you're a manager or something and you have more control over it then it seems like that has less uh, of an effect and you know, there's, there's, there's a huge number of things that interact here because, you know, when I talked about retirement earlier, the effect um, of retirement is greatest in those who have jobs that require higher levels of education to attain, probably because those jobs are more cognitively stimulating to begin with. And then the, the sort of removing that is, is a greater effect. So that person, their job stress may affect their, their risk of cognitive decline less because they're in, you know, may be more likely to be in a position of power but then when you remove that job, there's a bigger risk that they'll get cognitive decline because that stimulus isn't there. So there's like multiple different bits that, that, kind, of, that kind of interact. Wow. I feel like many people listen to this and are going, oh gosh, I'm going to get rapid cognitive decline because I'm <laughs> No, but I've already, given, I've already told you about all the tools that you could employ to prevent that from happening. <laughs> That's true. Well, one of them I really want to talk about, and I, I mean, it's my kind of, it's, this is my area, which is nutrition, and I... Mm-hmm. My um, dissertation biochemistry was on omega-3 neurodiversity and it actually led me into looking more at um, the development of brain health of children in the womb and the third trimester and the importance of omega-3 and Mm -hmm. the mother's nutrition during this time. Um, And it was interesting because I'm actually neurodivergent and that's, I think, what led me on that course to want to know more about it and become, Mm -hmm. not obsessive, but just, you know, the passion around it. When it affects you, you become much more um passionate about that subject now i actually had a really controversial comment on my podcast last week by somebody who i really highly respect i call it controversial only because i don't agree with it (laughs) (laughs) and the reason i say that is um dr tim Spector, who you've probably heard of um oh yeah yeah has pioneered gut health research i mean he is i have so much respect for him and his research especially as an epidemiologist into gut health 
And I asked him what was the one thing he changed his mind about in the last 10 years. And he said, you ready for it? He said, omega-3s, they're not important for our brain health. And I had to like cling onto my chair to not kind of fight back because I didn't want the whole podcast to go down this route of talking around omega-3s when we were meant to be talking about sweeteners and, and sugar in our health. Yeah. And he stated that there wasn't really any evidence that omega-3s support our brain health. And he also said, you know, if we eat all the fish, if we eat one to two portions of oily fish a week, we'll be out of fish in two years. So it was really interesting to kind of hear his perspective on that. Um, and so when you're talking about nutrients, I mean, my my position is still quite strong on omega-3s. I still actually do believe that they are really important for our brain health because 25% of our cell membranes are made up of DHA. But I just want to talk to you a bit more about this sector, not just about omega-3s, but what's your reaction to that that I've just told you? And then what are the other key elements that you also believe are really important for our brain health as well? So I can understand why you would why you would take that position. And a, a colleague and I, uh, Rory Heath, recently wrote a paper on like why have the benefits of DHA not been realized in Alzheimer's disease, right? This is exactly what Professor Spector was talking about on your podcast. And the thing is that when they've done interventional trials, they haven't seen much benefit. And then there's there's been sort of like the alternative studies, which is when when you look at you know somebody's brain on autopsy, and you look at how much DHA is in that brain, it doesn't really correlate that well with symptoms or, or dementia or anything like that. If we go all the way back to the beginning of life, um, like I talked about earlier, and we talk about developing a brain in the first place, anybody who says that DHA isn't important to like the developing brain is completely insane. There are decades, <laughs> decades of research which, which mm. show how, how important it is. Mm. Um, the question then is, how important is DHA for your long-term brain health? Like once you've accrued DHA in the brain, like as you, as you develop it, how long is it, how important is it to, to maintain that? And I think it's important to maintain enough. What comes up is that your... Um, your, your fat tissue is actually a really important depot for, for DHA. Um, and there are two parts of that. One, you need to make sure there's some fat, some DHA in that depot. And two, you probably need to, you know, and this is much more hypothetical. You probably need to access that depot to release the DHA so it's available to the brain. So the first thing is, yes, you know, eating some oily fish once or twice a week, which I think people should do, is is plenty to maintain DHA status. However, if you've if you've eaten enough fish in your lifetime, you probably have like ten years worth of DHA sitting in your adipose tissue ready to be used by the brain. So you have this huge buffer, and that's not something that people have really looked into. So mm -hmm. for the majority of people, they probably have enough sitting around because they've eaten some fish and some other things, and it gets stored in stored in the adipose and then and then released as this sort of like buffer mechanism. But there are a number of things that become important. So you probably only, you know, you, you in general release fat from your adipose tissue, DHA included, during periods when you're not eating, right? Mm -hmm. So it's possible that like continuously eating keeps your fat locked away, which is a terrible th way to, to talk about it. But it, it's essentially your, your fat releases, your, your fat tissue releases fat into the circulation 
when you're not eating, right? It, it's to maintain energy level, energy supply during fasting. So that may be why, you know, there's some epidemiological data that says that people with shorter eating windows may have less Alzheimer's disease. It could be because, you know, they're accessing that DHA is being released is going to the brain. This is highly, highly hypothetical and theoretical. And like nobody hold me to this. It's just how I'm thinking about it. The other aspect of it is what we alluded to earlier, which is that in order to use that DHA, for that DHA to be useful to the brain, first of all, the brain probably has to be healthy enough with good enough insulin signaling to take it up that one of the mechanisms by which DHA gets into the brain is DHA is insulin dependent. Mm -hmm. So in settings of chronic inflammation, maybe in people with APOE4, like they're less good at getting DHA into the brain, right? So that's, that's, that's a component. Uh, but equally, you know, the DHA doesn't just go in there as a fat and hang around and do good things on its own, right? It needs to be attached to a phospholipid so that it can, you know, so that it can be go into a cell membrane and do its job. So what do you need to make phospholipids? You need B vitamins, you need methylation to work properly, you need choline, right? This is another thing that I think is really important. Uh, for That's the brain. one that you There's... talk a lot about, isn't it? Choline. Yeah. Can you explain what that is for some people who don't know what that is? Choline is this molecule that's that's used um, in in these st structures. So, like a phospholipid is basically it's like this is this head and then this tail of fat. And it's you a need bit like a sperm, doesn't it? It looks like, yeah, and it, and it has like multiple <laughs> tails with 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 different fats attached. And that's that full thing is like the the the, the main sort of basic unit of a cell membrane. And choline is, is one of the things that gets it, that, that is important to make a certain type of phospholipid. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a recent study, again, in older adults where they gave them, they randomized them to give them choline and it improved cognitive function. Um, it, choline is also potentially important for like mitigating or you know, preventing the effects of like multiple concussions. Uh, and again, probably because it's, you, you're going to need it to, to repair cell membranes. So just consuming more DHA in a randomized clinical trial of people with Alzheimer's disease or cognitive decline, without taking into account those other things, of course, you're not going to see benefit. And and this is where, again, I would go back to the work of David Smith, where they did this secondary analysis, and it's a secondary analysis of a, a, a different clinical trial, right? So it's not a clinical trial in its own right, where they found, you know, the significant benefit of um, B vitamin replacement was in people who had good omega-3 status. So there are these interacting effects. So we always like to be reductionist and say there's this one thing which is really important, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's about not true. it all working together, isn't it? Because yes, it all works exactly. in synergy. And I think, like you mentioned, choline, and I think people are going to go, "What are choline foods?" So it's things like liver and it's eggs, eggs and egg yolk mm -hmm. and red meat and things like that. And yeah. I think as you're talking about it, there might be plant-based eaters that are listening to this, maybe having a slight panic yeah. of thinking, "Are they going to have cognitive decline?" Because they're not having the omega three, the longer chain omega threes. Um, which is the DHA from oily fish, and they might not be having these choline foods, which are you know more predominantly in animal products. So, what's your view on um, plant-based diets? I think if you feel good on a plant-based diet, and like regardless of your reason for eating it, it could be religious, ethical, environmental, great. If you feel good and everything looks good, fantastic. I think there's a possibility that. Some of the some people who thrive on plant-based diets are better at turning shorter-chain omega-3s into longer-chain omega-3s, right? So they can take ALA, alpha-linolenic acid, from 
chia seeds and walnuts and things like that and, and turn it into and yeah. yeah turn it into epa uh, and dha and there is there was one nice study which looked at people's most recent ancestry like were their most recent ancestors sort of far away from the equator or close to the equator because that probably that probably predicts whether polyunsaturated fatty acids omega-3s and omega-6s were more likely to come from plant-based foods or from animal-based foods and they had the genetics to adapt to that and so in those people whose recent ancestors were from closer to the equator they were more likely to be relying on plant-based foods as a, as a, a, a predominant part of their diet and then you know that's where you get shorter chain omega-3s and then they have the genetics to to better convert those into into longer chain omega-3s and that may be one of the reasons why some people thrive on a plant-based diet where, whereas others don't um it's difficult to kind of predict that but you can test your omega-3 levels and like some people will say you know you definitely can't turn enough ala into epa and dha but there are some studies which have compared vegans to omnivores and found no difference in DHA levels. And that's probably determined by the genetics of the individual. So, so there's the, the fat, the fat part. Um, and that may be part of it. I would just, I would just test. Um, there are plant-based sources of longer chain omega-3s that people can take if, if they need to, if, if they just don't have enough, like use something like the omega-3 index to, to guide that. Other aspects, right, because we talked about choline, we talked about B vitamins, right? The most bioavailable forms of B12 and folate, choline, all come from animal foods. Uh, however, there's lots of choline in, less, in lecithin. Uh, you can get um, like a, a sunflower lecithin. You know, you just like stir it into a smoothie. That's, that's a decent source. That you know, is a good source of choline uh, if, if you want it from a plant-based source. Uh, and then B vitamins. The, the, in particular, B12 the you know riboflavin and folate you can get from some other foods and for riboflavin you only need like the rda it's not you know you only need one to two milligrams a day it's 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 nothing again nothing heroic um but i think the the best people that i know in the plant-based space do recommend that people take a, a methylcobalamin supplement um and that's probably what i would that's probably what i would recommend i think that's the one thing it's really tricky to get to, to get that from uh plant-based sources and and the, the type of b12 that you get from plants cyanocobalamin isn't really very bioavailable people can call it b12 but it's it's just not it's not bioavailable it's not doing what what we think it is uh, in the body so that's the that's maybe the one area where i consider supplementing well then also choline through lecithin um and then creatine so creatine very abundant in animal foods particularly meat and fish uh, if you're if you're somebody who's on a carnivore diet and you're eating several pounds of meat or fish a day, you're probably getting enough creatine. You probably don't need to supplement. Everybody else, I think, should supplement uh, with creatine. Um, there's epidemiological data that um, suggests that those who have the most creatine in the diet have uh, reduced risk of depression. There are randomized controlled trials of uh, individuals who didn't respond to an SSRI, um, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, antidepressant, you know, something very typical like uh, citalopram or uh, something like that, um, Prozac, uh, fluoxetine. When they randomized them to the placebo or creatine on top of their antidepressant, the creatine group, and a, a typical creatine dose, five grams a day, saw significant improvements in their depression symptoms. 
individuals who like are acutely sleep deprived creatine improves uh skill-based performance there was a nice uh, study in rugby players where they had them be sleep deprived and then they gave them either caffeine or creatine and creatine improved or like mitigated sleep deprivation to a similar effect uh, as in a similar way as, as caffeine did um so it acutely improves cognitive performance um and that seems to be the, the effect is greater in people who are older. So there's a recent meta-analysis that looked at creatine trials uh, in people on their cognitive function. And essentially, the older they were and or, you know, sort of the worst, you know, any, any aspect of cognitive de decline to begin with, creatine ha had a bigger effect. Um, but there was even a study in, in mountain bikers recently that showed improved cognitive performance with a, with a loading um, with, with a loading phase of creatine, which is 20 grams a day for, for one to two weeks. Um, so acute cognitive performance, uh, depression symptoms, um, it probably helps offset some of the risks of concussions or any acute brain injury, right? So if you're anybody who's ever going to get a concussion or a traumatic brain injury or a stroke, having more creatine on board is probably going to be beneficial. Um, plus, you know, strength and performance. Um, is that enough? Like, there's a lot of reasons so why you should take creatine. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're so passionate about it. It's something that I don't think comes up that much. And there's a lot of, I think people have quite interesting viewpoints on, on creatine. So it's, it's, it's just really interesting to hear all of the studies and, and the support that you got for creatine. And, but you would say from hearing this, that if you are a meat eater, you probably wouldn't need to supplement. Would you still advise even looking at a supplement? No, I would still supplement. So, so I mean, I'm talking, if you're eating like two or three kilos of beef a day, which and I, I know some people who do eat that, that's probably enough creatine. If you're not eating that much, which most people are not, then then I, hope I would not for the environment's sake. <laughs> that's a, that's a different that's a different question. A different, that maybe it is a different question. Today. Um, <laughs> people are obviously concerned about the safety. There's connotations around it, like bodybuilders take it. Mm. There was a study, a two year study, randomized control trial in people with Parkinson's disease, where they gave them huge doses of creatine, 20 grams a day, which is probably four times more than you need to take for two years. No safety concerns in a frail older population, like no negative, negative side effects. Um, it, it wasn't, they, they, were, they were looking at it to see if it was neuroprotective in Parkinson's disease, which it wasn't. But I think you can say even in older more frail individuals who have neurodegenerative condition there's like no negative side effects so even at huge doses long term it's very very safe um so like that i think is something that that's really worth mentioning as well so we've got on our list we've got creatine choline b12 but b complex hmm. omega-3 dha EA, epa anything else that you think is important vitamin d uh, oh, vitamin D. Yeah, uh, very important. But I don't really... I'm sat here in the darkness. I feel yeah. like that's just one that came to my mind. I don't really count that just under under cognitive health, but like health in general, um, you know, autoimmune conditions, right? There was just this big trial that suggested that it, uh, people at risk of an autoimmune condition supplementing with vitamin D can decrease the risk. Uh, that was the first time that vitamin D actually seemed to be beneficial in autoimmune conditions because before it, it didn't seem to to make much of an effect. You know, probably you know athletic performance, you know, other aspects of health. Just just ensuring that your vitamin D is sufficient, I think, is important. Mm. Um, I think magnesium is is really important, mainly because most people are probably magnesium deficient, and mm. magnesium is super important for all aspects of vascular health, brain health. It has some important uh, things in the brain, metabolic health. 
so I, so I think uh, magnesium is is another low hanging fruit, super safe, uh, mm. really cheap. Um, and then the last thing, which I think is very interesting, is um, polyphenols that that seem to affect vascular function, but also can acutely uh, improve cognitive function. And so there are two or three three like broad groups where that seems to be the case. So cocoa flavonols, blueberry, anthocyanins, and then cranberry. Uh, as well. There was a, a recent uh, randomized study in individuals with cognitive impairment. They gave them cranberry powder and, they and it was associated with improved cognitive function. And it's probably uh, that there may be some direct effects of these polyphenols in the brain. So like blueberry anthocyanins, at least in animal studies, can inhibit some like negative inflammatory reactive things that can go on in the brain after after an injury. And, you know, if you give an animal blueberry anthocyanins before a traumatic brain injury, like they have less injury. Uh, and again, like I do animal work for a living and I know how rarely what happens in mice translates to humans. So, I, so I'll give that as like a, you know, there's a, there's a little caveat there. We don't have good evidence for that in humans, but we do have evidence for coca flavonols, cranberry and blueberry anthocyanins uh, improving cognitive performance uh, mm. in, in humans. Um, and that's probably because there's a vascular effect, you know, improving nitric oxide production, uh, maybe an effect through the gut. It's difficult to quantify still currently. And then there may also be a direct effect. So those are things that we have randomized clinical studies that suggest uh, a, a beneficial for the brain as well. So that's kind of like my my niche extra extra thing that I'd consider if you're if you're thinking about supplements for for brain brain health. I think, yeah, I mean, there's so many studies, especially around the blueberries. I think there was one recently which looked at exam rates and then they gave participants a punt of blueberries before the exam. They actually performed better than without having them. It was really interesting. Yeah. Just having that small switch to your diet, sometimes those small changes that can make a, a vast difference. Mm -hmm. um, but something I really want to come on to is myth busting just uh -huh. around some of these because we, we touched upon this last week when we spoke and I wanted to make sure I got it in here because... There's a lot of chatter in this environment right now, especially as you know, nutrition has come to the forefront, for, which I'm relieved about, that we're talking more about this, we're taking more active measures in our health. But at the same time, there's a lot of stuff that's unjustified. And there's a lot of things around metformin and talking about longevity. Mm. Um, and I'm gonna talk about him, but David Sinclair talks a lot about things that we can do to biohack within ourselves. And a lot of people are actually believing and buying into this and thinking it's going to help with their longevity and performance um and i think it's something that you're quite passionate about talking around so i'd love to ask you your thoughts around one metformin but all also around the whole biohacking center as well to help to do tw you know small things that can help i'll put people in two different groups based on whether i think metformin is going to be beneficial so or worth taking so where people got really interested in metformin was looking at big um, sort of epidemiological studies of, of individuals who had type 2 diabetes and were treated with either metformin or some other glucose-lowering drug. And then they looked at their long-term health. And in, you know, if they were otherwise similar, those who were treated with metformin got less cancer than those who were treated with some other drug. So there was kind of like this, you know, may maybe there's this sort of other benefit, anti-aging, anti-cancer benefit for metformin. And if you are pre-diabetic, 
definitely if you're type 2 diabetic and for whatever reason you don't want to or you're unable to change those aspects about your metabolic health and we know that there's lots of diet and exercise and other lifestyle factors that essentially drive that disease uh, or that condition if you're if you're unable to to make those changes and some people just don't have the capacity or the resources or whatever to do that and that's fine i would take metformin 100 if i had type 2 diabetes i would take metformin absolutely um it's definitely beneficial for a number of reasons if i was a healthy individual physically active um good metabolic health i would not take metformin i would actively not take it um not that i don't know if there's a benefit which i don't know if there's a benefit but i think that on balance there's likely to be harm um in particular because the way metformin works activating ampk modulating um mitochondrial function probably has some effect in the gut if you take metformin uh, make sure you uh to track your b12 status because metformin can inhibit uh b12 absorption in particular so like don't do one thing to improve your overall health and then like have have negative downstream effects of it so that's one important thing um but there are two trials now in uh individuals again sort of older individuals but not diabetic you know otherwise relatively healthy one they did an aerobic training protocol the other one they did a resistance training protocol and then they randomized them to take metformin or placebo in both of those trials on average, the metformin group benefited less from the training protocol. They gained less muscle mass in the resistance training protocol and they gained less aerobic function. VO2 their VO2 max improved less um, in the aerobic training group. So if you're somebody who, first of all, you don't meet the criteria for taking metformin in the first place and you're doing an exercise protocol that you're hoping to benefit from, I would not take metformin because it will inhibit that. And that goes back to that the, that mechanism of action a activating ampk is is important but you don't want it to interfere to interfere with some of the sort of antagonistic uh pathways that are, that are important for adapting to exercise so i know other people in the longevity sphere who i, I think are sensible and smarter who when they saw these data they said well on balance I will stop taking metformin even though they were previously because you know on balance it seems that metformin is is, is is going to be detrimental to that person within those individual studies there were of course people who responded very well on the in the metformin group right they grew, grew plenty of muscle or they got fitter but right now we can't really predict who that person is going to be so my general recommendation is if you're fit and healthy and you want to get fitter or healthier or benefit from your training program i would not take metformin because I know we're running out of time, I think I do want to touch upon because we've spoken a lot about nutrition and diet. But something I know you you both admire a lot to is around how we talk to oneself and the positive psychology of actually that this can also affect our brain health and our cognitive functioning. And you referenced to me a few studies that have been done that have actually showed that people that have harsh judgments of themselves, higher expectations, this actually can have a detrimental effect on our physiology. Would you be able to just interpret a bit more of that for me so this is where my dislike of the word optimal comes from um and this is another thing that i have changed my mind on i used to be optimize this optimize these blood tests optimize your performance i think like at one point i was starting to build a course 
called Optimize You or Optimize Me or something. <laughs> the problem with that is that it assumes that we know what optimal is, which mm. I would argue that we don't for pretty much everything that we've talked about today. Mm. Um, and second of all, if we did know what optimal was, it assumes that we can get there, which we probably can't. It's a moving target. And third of all, it means that the entire time that we're not optimal, we're busy telling ourselves that we're not optimal. We should be doing more. We could be better. And when we look at how expectation affects physiology and performance, that negative, like nocebo effect is very, is very marked. And so one nice example uh, that I have, they did some studies where they took individuals and they had them do uh, a treadmill test. It was like, how far can you run in 30 minutes? And then they did a genetic test and they said, you have good genetics for endurance performance or you have bad genetics for endurance performance. But they randomized it. So it didn't, so it wasn't true. They just told people they had good or bad genetics. The people who they told had good genetics, when they redid the treadmill test, they performed the same on average. The people who they told had bad endurance genetics, they got worse. Like they performed less well on the treadmill test because they thought, well, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not able to perform. Um, and there are so many different studies where if you look at how you give this information to people, they internalize it and it directly affects their physiology. So in that same study, they told people, randomized to tell people about uh, an obesity, uh, a gene related to obesity, FTO, which has a very teeny tiny effect on your, on your risk of obesity. And when they gave people a test meal and then they told them about their, their genes, they randomized to tell them and then they tested them again. Those who they told had this the risk gene for obesity, it changed how their hormones responded to a test meal. So this is not like some, uh, you know, like ethereal thing, you know, mind, body, whatever. Like you can phys physically measure differences in how your body responds physiologically based on your based on your expectation. And that affects blood sugar. It affects responses to sleep. You know, we talked about those studies. But one nice study, it's it's epidemiology. So we'll have to, so, you know, so I have to kind of give it the caveat that it's epidemiology rather than some randomized control trial. But they looked at people uh, in the US, this is in the, the NHANES data set, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. And they asked people, how physically active do you think you are compared to your peers? So compared to people like you, how physically active are you? And they rated themselves as like more active, just as active or less active. And then they adjusted for a whole bunch of stuff, like all the disease conditions, medications people take, uh, blood test data, socioeconomic status, like they adjusted for a, a huge laundry list of things, as well as how much physical activity people actually did. And there was a subset of this study where people had pedometers. So they, so they knew how much, like they had some activity data. They knew how much people were moving. And what they found was that even after, if, after you adjust for how much exercise you're actually doing, plus a whole bunch of other things, if you think that you're doing less than people like you, that was associated with an increased risk of mortality. And this is not definitive, but if you like piece together all these different bits of information, what it says to me is that if you're constantly saying, I don't do enough, I should be doing more, this isn't good enough, I'm not optimal yet, you're setting yourself up for these negative physiological reactions that could translate to worse long-term health. So I fully believe that most of us can do a little better, right? 
There are things that we can improve. It will definitely improve our long-term health. But if we frame it as striving for optimal, you know, never doing enough, then I think the net effect on our health can be negative. Mm -hmm. So I'm much more in favor of an approach which is control the things you can and then make sure you don't worry about the things that, that you can't control. Um, and that's, you know, you see that idea in Stoic philosophy. You see it in, um, I'm not personally religious, but you see it in the serenity prayer. Like controlling the things you can, improving those things you can, celebrate small wins when you get small wins because like that's going to, give you some placebo effect i love i love the placebo effect as mm -hmm. much of it as you can get um <laughs> if you focus on the negative the things you aren't doing the things mm. that you have to improve how far you are mm. from optimal i think it's going to have a negative uh, impact on your health do you think that's why gratitude can play a really important part in our overall health is actually being aware of things that maybe that we already have or that we've achieved in that day and things that we're actually taking account for as opposed to all the things that we haven't managed to do in that day, all the things that we have failed at. Because <laughs> I yeah. think that's what we remember. I always yeah. think, well, I haven't done all of these things, but I forget all the things that I actually have achieved. I think that's very likely. I don't have mm. a good study to support it. And, and how people practice gratitude, how it's studied so far hasn't been particularly rigorous. So I can't really point at one area of the literature that says like, this is why gratitude is really good for your health. I, I think it kind of fits into that bigger picture of, like accepting where we are, enjoying where we are, celebrating the the things that we have managed to achieve ra rather than focusing on the negative. I think, you know, over time that can really build up to, to, to sort of have these bigger impacts. And so generally overall, I mean, there's so much more I could talk about this and things that are more detrimental for our health, but sadly I know we're running out of time. But who would you say is the typical healthy individual that you see actually has the least favorable effects of having something like dementia or cognitive decline what would that look like the one the, the one group that I, I guess i have a fair amount of experience with and it is probably relatively you know well related to your your audience is you know it, it's kind of like the group where you hear this all the time you're like he was so fit like he ran all these marathons and then he had a heart attack and you know it's the same thing like oh you know i've this person is like they're cognitively stimulated they're busy all day at work like they they have this you know high-powered job where they're doing all these sort of interesting and exciting things and yet they still get dementia and i think in in both of those scenarios you can probably figure out what that individual was not doing and it's usually not enough rest and recovery stress mitigation but like in the runner they're probably not doing you know probably the, the volume is too high they're not sleeping not doing any strength training, right? So they're not, not taking care of other parts of, of their body. They may be under eating certain, certain nutrients because, you know, if we're thinking about, thinking about the brain, a lot of those nutrients may come from animal source foods. So if they're decreasing those or trying to decrease their fat intake because they think that that's going to be better for their health, you're not taking in those nutrients because some of they come often with, 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 with fat and food. So like making sure that that person is testing their levels and supplementing um, in sort of like the, in the in the dementia scenario uh again maybe we're thinking about rest and recovery you know people think they're busy but that's not necessarily like real cognitive demand skill bit building and that's the kind of busyness that could have a negative effect again sleep becomes important nutrition becomes important so i think people often think that running is enough physical activity um they think that uh being busy at work all day is cognitive stimulus and 
you know they think that the diet that they eat has all the nutrients that they need for their for their brain health uh but it, it you know it can often be very rich in refined carbohydrates or you know cause large swings of blood sugar big spikes in blood sugar i'm sure uh tim Spector talked about that so i think there are some things that even people who you know they look outwardly fit and healthy you know are probably not doing either some of the nutrition stuff or some of the rest and recovery stuff um that that, that i think is you know is or even some of the demand side like resistance training or true cognitive demand that I, that I think is going to be important and so lastly because I could talk to you all day honestly this is just fascinating we haven't even got on to the things like alcohol and 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 so many more things I want to talk to you about but sadly I feel like we could be here for three hours if we did <laughs> so I feel like I need to put it in and get you back on to, to talk about the next section but um it's fascinating and I think it really shows that we do have the opportunity to actually transform our brain health even transform our physiology from just actually one the environment we're in but even just maybe acknowledging where we are currently because i think the power that i'm hearing as well is that we do have the power to change this even if we're hearing all of these things okay well maybe i'm not doing any of these yeah. we still have the power to change that it doesn't mean that it's doom and gloom from here on it means that we actually can you know have that power and that knowledge to make these favorable changes that can help support us and i think you know now more than ever with increased stress we definitely need to to have a look at what we can do to support oneself yeah. so my question to you which is the last one um <laughs> which i'm very interested by is and you can't say weights on this uh-huh. but if you could give me one answer is tommy what does live well be well mean to you what it means to me is and again i think it's important to put the caveat of like not everybody is able to do this like you and i are able to do this your listeners are probably able to do this but the vast majority of the population may not be able to do this but i think as much as like live well be well you know as much as you can you know manipulate various aspects of your environment trying to embody as much as possible of like really the things that made us human in the first place and a little bit of everything, right? I think about different levers of health. And if you pull one really hard, or if you're not pulling the other ones, you have to pull the other one really hard to, to see benefits. And what I mean by that is if you're doing nothing else for your, your health, but you're only focusing on your diet, you might have to make your diet really restrictive or really niche or really personalized to see significant health benefits. But if you're pulling multiple levers like rest and recovery, physical, you know, movement, social connection, sleep, and stress mitigation, then you probably need to move each one a little bit. Getting enough sleep, getting socially connected, moving a little bit every day, eating a diet that looks like food, at least, you know, those, those are the things. And I think that's what makes us, that's what makes us human, you know, as well Mm. as, you know, a thirst for knowledge and novelty and skills, right? Because that's another, which we talked about. So, so I think, a life that embodies little bits of all of those things, which is what essentially makes us human. I, I think that's what live well, be well means. I think that's fantastic. I think, you know, kind of kicking, sticking to those core subjects is ones that we can quite easily forget. Yeah. Just getting some more sleep. It's, it's, it's something that we kind of might put last because we feel like we're really busy. It's yeah. something that we can all try and move that barometer to, to optimizing a bit more. And, um, 
popcorn. Something I didn't even get to touch upon in this episode, sadly. Um, <laughs> but tell me, where can people find more of you? Because I feel like after this episode, people are going to want to know a lot more about the work that you do. Um, and yeah, where can, where can they head to find more about you? The best place is probably is, is Instagram, at Dr. Tommy Wood. Um, I will, you know, if I, put, if I write a paper that people, that I think is, is relevant um, to, to sort of like the general health audience, then I'll post it there. If I do a podcast, I post it there, at least in, at least in my stories. I'll probably post pictures of my gym, lots of pictures of my dogs. So if you're interested in those kinds of things, uh, <laughs> that, that's the place to go. And you're interested in one post every two weeks. Um, that's the place to go. And, um, but in general, I don't have very many followers on Instagram. So in general, I can respond to most of the DMS that I get. So if you have a specific question, send me a message and I'll do my best to, to, to answer and get back to you. Amazing. Well, I'm going to pop that in the show notes. I normally say I'm going to pop the studies in the show notes, but you have referenced so many studies <laughs> that I'm just not going to even announce that on this one. Um, but it was just a wealth of knowledge and information. Um, and I would absolutely love to get you on to kind of talk about this again. Because um, there was just a lot that we didn't get to cover today. Um, but it was fascinating. Great. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed this. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please can I ask one huge favour. If you could subscribe, share and rate this podcast, it would mean an immense amount to me and all the fantastic guests who come on to share their expertise and knowledge with us. It will keep this podcast growing and it will allow us to continue making episodes. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.